Good to be together today. Good to see all of you. Uh, we are in a series walking through, looking at the parables of the Lord Jesus. We come to the last of the parables in Matthew chapter 13 today. These are known as the parables of the kingdom. I'll talk about that a little bit more here in just a few moments. We're going to get into, in the coming weeks, Luke and some of the parables that he shares there. And then finally back to Matthew, Matthew 22, 23, 24, and 25, where Jesus gives some parables of final judgment. Um, so today we're looking at the parable of the dragnet, or the parable of the net. Um, it comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 through 50. I'm going to ask if you would, I know we just sat down, but for you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. We stand week in and week out because this is where truth comes from. Isn't it wonderful? We get to hear from God's Word. We get to study God's Word. Um, we have a solid rock on which to build a foundation of our families, our lives. And this is it right here, Matthew chapter 13. Uh, these are the words of Jesus, the parable of the net, verses 40, beginning at verse 47. Here we go. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You may be seated. Um, so let's take a look at these verses. We'll start at verse 47. Before I do that, I just want to point out really quickly, next Sunday begins our Ever Member Ministry campaign. So back in the lobby, you'll see next Sunday be lots of tables, lots of sign-up opportunities, things like greeter ministry, folks that are out here mowing our grass, folks that are taking care of the grounds, people that are helping out teaching our kids' Sunday school classes, all sorts of ways for you to plug in. I invite you to check those tables out over the course of the next three weeks and figure out where you might like to serve in the coming year. Um, let's take a look at verse 47. It says, notice first, notice first of all the word again. He starts with again. He says, again, the kingdom of God is like. So that word again tells us that this is not the first time Jesus has taught on the subject of the kingdom of God. In fact, as I pointed out a moment ago, Matthew chapter 13, all of these parables are focused on this topic of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. We learned in the past couple of weeks, and I'll remind you again here today, that Mark and Luke use the phrase kingdom of God. Paul, I'm sorry, Matthew likes to use the phrase kingdom of heaven. Those two are um, interchangeable. Those phrases are talking about the exact same thing. But what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? In short, in sum, it is the future reign of God on planet Earth. When we hear the term kingdom of heaven, sometimes we think of some sort of an ethereal existence, like we're up in heaven and we're floating around like the angels are floating around. But that's not what Matthew means when he says the kingdom of God. He's talking about God coming here to earth in the land of the physical and that he's going to put his reign and his rulership over everything that happens here on this earth. It's a time when the Messiah will sit on his throne in Jerusalem and the governments of the world will subordinate themselves to him. Under Messiah's reign, he will bring peace. He will bring the shalom of God to all the inhabitants of the world. Secondly, when God's kingdom comes to the earth, creation itself will be reset. God will fundamentally, the Messiah will fundamentally change the order of creation. I mean, animals are all going to be getting along. Wolves will be laying down side, alongside lambs. Little children will be playing with snakes. And all of this is discussed and fed by uh, prophecies in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Several months back, we covered some of that. You can go back, check that out online. Those sermons are there online and learn a little bit more about that. With these parables, Jesus is expanding on what Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets have already taught. Jesus is saying, I'm going to add some additional clarity to what life is going to be like when the kingdom of God comes to earth in the physical realm. Remember, the kingdom of God is not a place. It's not that the kingdom of God is here and this place, the earth. Rather, it is the reign, it is the rulership of God come to the earth. 
And with these parables, Jesus offers some thoughts about that. Um, I've prepared a little synopsis table for you, if you would, that just kind of shows each of these parables that we've covered so far and what Jesus teaches us about the parables. A parable of the sower, for example, Jesus taught that good, um, the good soil is a spiritually minded soil, and he was inviting us to be spiritually minded, to have ears that can hear spiritually. With the parable of the wheat and the weeds, Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God comes, uh, but it's not going to, when, when it does come, God's not going to do away with the unrighteous. Um, the weeds are going to grow up alongside the wheat. The unrighteous are going to grow up alongside the righteous, at least for some while. With the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, we learned a couple of weeks ago that the, both of those teach the same thing. Basically, that the kingdom of God is going to start small, and then it's going to grow big. Like a little mustard seed, but then it's going to grow like the big mustard tree. With the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price, there's both, those both invite the listener to value participation in the kingdom above all else. And then finally, with today's parable, the parable of the dragnet, teaches that the kingdom of God, when it comes in its fullness, that there will be judgment awaiting the unrighteous. So this is actually a parable of warning. So let's take a look at this. Start at verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. The word net in the Greek is the word segene. It's where we get the word sane from, a saning net. Some of you have participated in that. You've been down to the Georgia coast. You've had one of these really long nets, had a pole on one end, had a pole on the other end, and you walk that saning net out through the water. Well, the, the commercial fishermen had these kind of saning nets or these segene, and they would attach one end to one boat. They attach another end of this large rectangular boat or net to another boat, and they would drag that net through the sea. Or perhaps they'd have a pole at one end at the shoreline attached to the boat out, out well offshore, and then they would drag that thing across uh, the water. Well, as you can imagine, that when you drag a net of that length through the water, that you're going to pick up all kinds of aquatic creatures. Freshwater shrimp, for example. They would have picked up a lot of freshwater shrimp, but they had to throw those back because the Jewish people, that was not considered kosher. They weren't allowed to eat crustaceans. Uh, they couldn't eat fish without scales. So things like freshwater eels, things like catfish that they would have caught up in their net, had to throw all those back because those fish didn't have scales. Um, turtles, all that was considered inedible. inedible. Um, what those fish, Jewish fishermen were after were freshwater tilapia, tilapia Galilea, they called it, on the Sea of Galilee. Got a picture of that for you here. And so, um, so here's, here's what they look like in their big, I guess, fresh catch form. But then you can see what they look like when you get to the restaurant, right? So they would score the meat on this fish, and then they would cook it over hot coals, and then the patron of the restaurant would just pick the meat off of the bones, and that's how they would eat this. Verse 48. When the dragnet, the seining net, was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So instead of trying to pull this heavy net up over the gunnels of the boat and probably swamp my boat, right, because you've got this heavy net and all this weight in it, and the gunnel's going to go down to the edge of the water, and then you end up with some sort of a, you know, bailing out situation. And so instead of doing that, they would drag that net up to the shoreline, pull it onto the shore, and then begin the sorting process on uh, dry land. Notice the words good and bad in the original Greek have no moral overtones. I've got a slide for you here. The word that is translated good in the Greek is the word kalos, which typically translates as beautiful. So other places in the New Testament where this word kalos is mentioned, it translates as beautiful. And so they're calling these fish beautiful. They're not referring to the fish as morally bad or morally good. They're simply saying of this fish, that it's a beautiful fish and it's an acceptable fish. It's one that we would like to eat. Same thing in the Greek word that's translated bad is the word sapros, which means of poor 
quality. Again, it has nothing to do with the morality of the fish. That's going to become an important point here a little bit later. Just log that in your brain. We'll come back to it in just a little bit. Um, Now, that is the parable. So just two verses. Jesus tells this story. He says, hey, the kingdom of God is like this dragnet, goes through the sea, bring that net up to the shore, and the fishermen sort through it. He says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Um, What follows in verses 49 and 50 is the interpretation of the parable. Jesus tells the disciples what the parable means. Now, that, that should let us know that there should be zero, right, none, confusion or disagreement as to what the parable means. <laughs> but as you have discovered <laughs> through the series, uh, that's not always the case. So people start trying to make I- different ideas about what they think the parable means instead of just listening to what Jesus says the parable is about. Uh, verse 49, Jesus begins the interpretation. Here we go. He says, So it will be at the end of the age. Jesus is saying, Just as I described the way the fishermen set out or sort out the keepers from the rest, you can expect that same activity of sorting when we get to the end of the age or the end of time. And when he says the end of the age, he's referring to the, in this occasion, he's referring to the return of Christ. He's talking about when Jesus returns uh, and the kingdom comes in its full consummation. Here's what you can expect when that happens. He says, the, verse 49, the angels will come out and separate the evil, just like the fishermen were separating the good fish from the bad fish. The angels will come out and they will separate the evil from the righteous the bad from the good, the unacceptable from the acceptable, the holy from the profane. Verse 50, and at that time they will throw the unholy, they will throw the evil into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, Now there is a lot that has been said about the meaning of this parable uh, by some very well-meaning and very sharp uh, scholars of Scripture. However, much of what has been said that kind of goes askew, disregards verses 49 and 50. It's just people sitting with verses 47 and 48 and saying, this is what I think he's talking about. Instead of going to what Jesus said, here's what I was talking about. And so that begins to raise an issue. Um, The focus of Jesus' interpretation is on the sorting of the fish. Jesus' interpretation has nothing to do with the dragnet. And so because of that, even though on your bulletin front I titled this the parable of the dragnet, it should, because that's historically what this has been referred to as, it should be perhaps more accurately called the parable of the sorting. The parable of the sorting. Um, Now, I know what you're thinking to yourself. You're thinking, Gordon, who cares? I mean, (laughs) parable of the sorting, parable of the dragnet, I mean, does it really matter? Um, What's the big whoop here? Well, when we turn the focus away from the sorting and to the dragnet, here's the kind of stuff that we end up with. Some scholars who put the focus on the dragnet, for example, conclude that with this parable, Jesus is teaching about methods of evangelism. And they conclude that the proper method of evangelism is not throw a hook out, a line out with a hook on it, and go after one at a time. What people are, that's, there's some folks that have concluded that, and they say, you know, the proper method of evangelism is to try and broadcast a big message. And so we need to go to things like radio, we need to go to things like TV, we need to have crusades, because that's the way that you reach people for Christ. That's what Jesus is telling us here, cast a big wide net. Now there's a place for those things, those are great methods, but to say that those are the preferred methods of evangelism, I mean, is that the correct way to handle the word of truth? 
Still others focused on the dragnet have said that our evangelistic efforts, efforts should avoid pointing out difficult teachings in Scripture. They should avoid pointing out culturally sensitive, sinful issues because those might turn people off from responding to the gospel. And so they say, you know what, we need a message for the masses. We need to go out and we need to cherry pick out of God's word the stuff that is more palatable, the stuff that is more fun, the stuff that is more engaging and that people will respond to positively and just tell them that. And by doing that, we're kind of a dragnet evangelism methodology. Maybe we'll teach them about that other difficult stuff later, sometime down the road, but for now, let's just hide it from them because we need to cast a broad net. Friends, this is a case in point of how to improperly handle the word of truth. And I'll admit, as I was going through this this week and thinking about this and reflecting on it, it really breaks my heart that somebody would look at this text and say that Jesus has given us a methodology of evangelism and that we need to cast a broad net and that they define what that net is supposed to be. Um, again, they're reading verses 47 and 48 and ignoring verses 49 and 50, Jesus' interpretation. Friends, it is a dangerous thing to go proof-texting around the Bible, to have a predetermined point of view in search of a Bible verse to substantiate it. Here at Hebron, week after week, at, and I'm, at every age level, I was going to say I'm proud of this. I am proud of this. I'm going to be quite honest with you. At every age level, we are presented with a historical, contextual treatment of the Bible. That means that we start with the question, what did the original author mean and what did the original author or original audience hear and then we work our way out from that historical contextual perspective toward your life and mine answering questions like well okay now what difference does this make to me when it comes to the parables i presented to you in week one some guardrails some rules to help ensure proper treatment of these biblical texts rules that would help maintain the integrity of what jesus meant and one of those rules was rule number two here's our rules Rule number two was, look to see if Jesus interprets the parable. Because if Jesus interprets the parable, then there should be zero guesswork when we're dealing with, well, what did he mean by this dragnet? What did he mean by these people sorting stuff on the fish? Well, he told us, right? Keep reading. I mean, I, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be cynical, but it, it should be that obvious. Jesus says, here's the point. Here's why I told you all this story. Verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. So it will be at the end of time. The activity of sorting is a metaphor of the activity that's going to happen at the end of time at final judgment. Just like those fishermen were out there sorting out the fish, the angels will be sorting out the good from the bad, the acceptable, the keepers from the ones that are going to throw into the fiery furnace. Verse 50. Um, and the ones who are evil will be thrown into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, this is a parable, not about methods of evangelism. This is a parable of warning. That's what this is. This is not a text about how everyone's welcome into the kingdom. Although everyone is welcome into the kingdom. John 3, 16, for God to love the world, right? Some of us have uh, Reformed theology kind of in our background, built in our background. And you've maybe heard some preachers say before, for God to love the elect. Well, is that what the text says? Again, we don't want to start with a predetermined conclusion and go hunting for a Bible verse or impose onto a Bible verse something that substantiates what we think. Of course God loves everybody. Of course Jesus died for everybody. That's what the text 
says, let the text speak for itself. But again, the fact that the net, in this case, is going through the world and scooping up everything, friends, that is not saying that everybody goes to heaven. If that's what we concluded, then we stopped at verse 47, where the net gets drugged through the water. Well, if we keep reading in verse 48, we see that what gets into the net gets sorted out. Um, Jesus said this is a parable of warning. This is a parable about the sorting that is going to come at the end of time, at the consummation of the kingdom of God. The keepers will go to heaven. The rest will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Now, let's put ourselves on that shoreline for just a moment. If I'm a first century Jew whose diet from birth excluded certain kinds of food that those fishermen would have been gathering in that net, and I hear Jesus say, verse 47, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. My first century Jewish mind immediately goes to food that I am not allowed to eat. And the activity of those fishermen who were out there sorting out the good from the bad, the keepers from the ones that they're not going to keep, and sorting all of that out. I got a quick picture here for you. This is of the Sea of Galilee. And this is that cove where Jesus sat in a boat and taught the people gathered on the shoreline, hundreds if not a thousand or so people. He got back from the shoreline a little way so he could broadcast his voice so they could all hear him. And, uh, and if there's another picture here, and it shows Capernaum, which is the city where he had just come from. This all happened in one day, Matthew chapter 13. And he's at the city of Capernaum, and he travels down to this cove a little bit later in the day. He's, the whole episode happens alongside the shoreline. You almost get the sense that as Jesus is making his way from Capernaum to that cove, he's identifying sermon illustrations. Right? There's probably some guys who have just been out there seining with their nets, and they're on the shoreline. They've drug them to the shore, and they're doing the sorting activity things. That'll make a great sermon illustration, right? And why are they doing this? Why are they sorting it out? Again, because Jewish people cannot eat catfish, fish without scales. They cannot eat shrimp, any kind of crustaceans. And Jesus says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will sort out the good, the keepers, from the bad. And the bad will be thrown, not back into the sea to swim away, but they'll be thrown into the fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, well, that concludes our parable and the interpretation for today. And so that brings things up to your life and mine. And the question that we ask every week around here, which is, what difference does all this make to my life? Let's see if we can answer that. Um, with this parable, plus Jesus' accompanying interpretation, we see Jesus affirm the doctrine of hell. Jesus teaches us here in this parable that hell is a real place, and he teaches us that people will go there. He teaches us that God's not going to change his mind when it comes to the end of time, and he's sorting out, and he says, you know what, maybe we won't sort these out. Maybe we'll just bring them all in. Jesus says, no, that's not the way this is going to work. God's not going to show some mercy, some ex extra mercy at the end. God says, hey, look, there's one way to get to heaven. Jesus is that way, and he's going to allow the chips to fall where they may. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, John writes about this future time of judgment. John says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if you are a self-preservationist, 
and you want, then you want to secure for yourself the very best possible future that you can. And it, so it would be wise of us to make sure that we are in the lot that Jesus plans to keep, right? I want to be in that lot. You want to be in that lot. That would be smart. That would be prudent. Flip over to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Paul is writing to a group of Christians in Rome, and among them are some pompous, self-righteous, religious Jewish people. They believe that by following the laws of Moses and by being a good moral Jew, by jumping through all the religious hoops that they're supposed to jump through, that that will secure for them God's favor. That God will look on them and he'll say, you know what, I'm going to accept that one. Because that one is trying their best. They're giving it their all. They're following the laws. They're doing all the things they're supposed to do. Paul says, sorry to burst your bubble, but here's the situation as it stands. Romans 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned. In other words, ain't not a one of you perfect. I know that you're striving to do morally right. I know that you're striving to do the right thing, but not one of you is perfect because all have sinned, and because all have sinned, we've fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, there's not a single member of the human race of our own merit that is a keeper. That's what Paul's saying. So let's go back to our slide where we saw those words good and bad. The words Sapros, or Sapros and Kalos. Remember, the basis of the sorting had nothing to do with the moral qualification of the fish. Jesus is not saying this fish is more a keeper because it's morally adept, because it's morally in line. This fish is a throwaway because it's morally bad. Again, your morality is not the basis of God's acceptance of you. Let me say that again. Your morality, or lack thereof, is not the basis of God's acceptance of you. We know that we're not good. We know that all have fallen short. And let me say, thank goodness, that God does not hold up for Gordon Griffin his moral track record as the basis for his acceptance of me. And I would say you say amen to that, right? I mean, who possibly could get into heaven if that's the basis of God judging me, my moral track record, because all have fallen short? So how do we gain access? How do we become a keeper? If God's not judging us on the basis of our moral track record, what qualifies us? Skip ahead to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Paul writes these words. For the wages of sin is death. In other words, what you earn is judgment. What you earn is the fiery furnace because of your sin. But the gift of God is eternal life. So there is a way. There is a way to become a keeper. There is a way to, to obtain heaven. You and I can become a keeper. How? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, the way we get eternal life, the way to become a keeper in God's eyes, is by accepting the free gift of God, namely Christ Jesus our Lord. When we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, when we accept the blood that Jesus paid on the cross as the payment for our sins, God no longer sees us as bad, but God changes the way he views us. We now become a keeper in his eyes. What difference does this make to your life and mine if you're here today and you have never put your faith and your trust in the blood that Jesus shed on the cross as the means for your entry into heaven? Then you are heading for a disaster in eternity. Now, I know that's not fun to hear. I know that's not palatable. I know that may offend some to hear that. But friends, that's the truth of it. And this is what Jesus is saying here. 
That's just the truth of it. Now, again, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In John chapter 14 and verse 6, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father but through me. Where's the Father? The Father's in heaven. Jesus is saying, no one gets to heaven except through me. Again, if you're a self-preservationist, then you will want to avail yourself of this information. Jesus has said, here's the way to become a keeper. Here's the way to get to heaven. I'm that way, Jesus said. There isn't any other way. God made a way. He made that way through me. You come to God through me. You get to heaven through me. And so, again, if we're self-preservationists, let's avail ourselves of that. If we want to appeal to the Lord, we want to appeal to the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, put our faith and our trust in him and the blood that he shed on the cross for us as the sole means for gaining access to heaven. Friends, a wise person would act on that. Something for you to think about. You say, Gordon, uh, I mean, I appreciate what you're sharing this morning, but I have availed myself of that. I have entered into this relationship with the Lord Jesus. I have asked him to forgive me of my sins. I have that personal relationship with him. I'm trusting in what he did on the cross as my means for gaining access to heaven. So what difference does any of this make to me? Um, well, great question. Uh, I know that we all came for the chicken this morning. <laughs> But uh, we've also come uh, to hear what difference this makes to your life and to mine. So let's see if we can answer that. I've got one thought for you here, and then we'll close. One of the primary motivators for world missions and evangelistic crusades and all of that sort of thing is because Jesus believed in and taught the doctrine of hell and the doctrine of final judgment. One of the primary motivators for people to go out into the world and share about this good news of Jesus is because hell's a real place. Jesus wasn't bashful about saying it was a real place. In fact, as I was in my studies this week, I was reminded again that the second most discussed topic in Jesus's, all of his teachings, was hell. And so I thought, well, I guess I'm going to ruin Homecoming Sunday by talking about the doctrine of hell. <laughs> Friends, hell is real. We may not like to talk about it, but it is a real place, and it's an important doctrine. We may even say one of the most important doctrines of the church. I've shared this with you before, and I'll share this with you again, that the Lord did not give me the gift of evangelism. I mean, I would much rather go into the Golden Pantry in the morning to get my Diet Coke and just duck my head and go back out to my car than lock eyes with somebody and have a conversation with somebody or check in with the people at the register. I'd much rather do that. I'd much rather do that than stop and pray with somebody. It's just not the way that I'm wired to want to do that sort of thing, but... Knowing what you and I know, how can we pass by people that we know are heading for a train wreck in eternity? Right? Knowing what we know. Walking through life, friends, with our head down and just leaving people in their ignorance about the things of God, that's not what good neighbors do. So share your story. Invite someone to church. Tell them the difference that Jesus has made in your life. And when we're standing at the great white throne of judgment, friends, they will be glad that we push through the sweaty palms and the dried tongue and the beating heart and share with them the good news of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, which pricks right to the heart. Lord, you get to the heart of the matter. You show us what life is all about. Lord, may we put our energies, put our resources, put our affections toward the things that uh, are eternal. 
This morning as we gather around this table, we're reminded, Lord Jesus, of your broken body, of your shed blood. Lord, in these quiet moments, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Stir us where we need to be stirred. Show us your way. Lord, if there be any here this morning that have not taken that step of faith, may they in these quiet moments turn to you, invite you into their life, plead to you for the forgiveness of sins, and enter into a completely changed eternal state. We give you this space. Work in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.